Well, I want to, uh, in a couple of moments, I want to open up to you the 33rd Psalm, Psalm 33. And I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to have it open in front of you. We're going to just walk our way through that psalm uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, the text of the psalm is pasted uh, below the video, either on the church website, grace.london, or um, on the YouTube page. You'll see it in the description if you just scroll down. So the text is all there, and I want to encourage you to to, uh, cast your eyes at it as we're working our way through this extraordinary psalm. I want to open up to you this 33rd Psalm, a message entitled, The Might of God in the Midst of Crisis. Rather than reading the whole psalm to you up front, I want to simply read to you the first three verses to begin, and then we're going to walk our way through the psalm uh, over the course of this time. Let me read these first few verses. It begins in this way. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to him with the harp of ten strings, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, a few weeks ago, we began this series um, during lockdown um, called Songs in the Dark. And the idea is to dive into a number of the Psalms that speak or give voice to the kinds of uh, truths and also the way we might respond to God at a moment like this and the kind of words we want to say back to him and to help us understand his ways better. And uh, one of the questions you might ask immediately is, why this psalm? If anything, it feels a little bit of an odd choice because it starts on this note of joy. And uh, it continues on that vein to a large extent through most of the psalm. But the reason why I've chosen this one is because at the very end, you have this kind of clue that the context of the psalm, as is often true in so many of them, the context is one of needing to speak to your own soul because the circumstances you're in uh, do not necessarily lead you to worship, do not necessarily lead you to a deeper love for God because you're suffering or because you're in crisis. And certainly at the end, there's this kind of rallying cry, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And the psalmist would only speak in this way if indeed the situations of life are challenging frequently and cause you to question the goodness of God or the character of God or any of these aspects of our faith. And so even though it starts on this joyful note, I want you to, to understand, of course, that the psalmist gets it and he gets where we're coming from. He understands uh, the, the questions that we ask and the pain that we face and the confusion of life. And the question I want to begin with, to ask with you as we open this is, what, what do we need most in, when we're in a time of crisis? What is it that we most need in a time of crisis? And I think our answer you know, would first of all be, well, we need deliverance. We need the help of God to move fast to deliver us. And I don't think that that's irrelevant, but I actually don't think that's our primary need at any point in life. There's a verse, a couple of verses at the beginning of one of Paul's letters to Corinthians where he describes an experience of real affliction and suffering. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. Now, it's very hard to put ourselves in the mind of the apostle, what he was facing. We know hints of it from his letters, the kind of experiences he went through as a traveling preacher, often you know, at the very edge of death, often in prison, often being um, persecuted in all kinds of severe ways. So when he says we, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, he's not exaggerating in any way. 
But then he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then he says he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. So there is this confidence about the delivering power of God. But before deliverance, there's something more important, which Paul says we we needed to learn in a severe test. He says we needed to learn not to rely upon ourselves, but to rely upon God. He says that suffering has this capacity to grow the muscle of your faith and to teach you that you don't have the resources you need or the answers you need or the power you need in life to live it on your own. You need a God who is over you. And this is certainly true. Uh, this is this truth is taught, I should say, all the way through scripture in all kinds of ways. You know, you think about one of the most severe tests any man could ever go through was a test when God told Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. And uh, he said, go, go up the mountain and sacrifice your son Isaac, your only son. Abraham goes up the mountain. He brings Isaac with him. He lays him on an altar. He lays out um, all, all the preparations. And he takes a knife and he's about to slaughter his own son Isaac as an act of de- obedience to God. You know, the suffering in that moment, the agony that he was going through in that moment is, is very difficult to even explain or to grasp. But as he's about to wield the knife, an angel speaks to him and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And the purpose of it is to teach Abraham to trust in God. Reflecting on it thousands of years later, one of the Bible writers says that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And it says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So Abraham's faith extends beyond that moment of severe testing and gives him the confidence to do what God tells him to do or to be willing to do it. As it happens, God provides an animal, provides a ram stuck in a thorn bush, a substitute death for the death of Isaac and a symbol of what Christ would one day do for us. I think also about the confidence of another, other examples of men trusting God, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, when they were told to bow down to the idol that represented Nebuchadnezzar and worship it, um, they refuse. And their sentence is to die a horrible death in a fiery furnace. And as they answer back to the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, I love that moment, but if not, they say, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. In other words, faith in God is more important than the experience of deliverance, than the experience of God's power at work in this moment in the way we want him to work. And that is the abiding message of the scriptures. You may not see the deliverance you want at this moment, but our faith is what God is interested in, our trust. Many years ago, when I was just six years old, towards the end of the 1980s, my dad was uh, had his first close brush with death and uh, he was severely ill. He had acute pancreatitis. The surgeons took out his pancreas and one of the surgeons left a vein bleeding into his stomach. And that night, um, my dad vomited up, I think it was 11 pints of blood. It was an unbelievably traumatic experience in intensive care and his life was on a knife edge. And then he spent many months in hospital recovering 
And it was always touch and go. Would he survive? And there were moments, you know, I remember visiting him in the hospital, had tubes up his nose. He'd lost so much weight. It was, it, you know, these, these memories are burned on my mind, even though I was a young boy. One of the things dad would say, you know, is, particularly as my mom would visit him and she'd be crying at the, at the bedside, he would say to her a phrase that he'd learned from a, another preacher, which is dignify the trial. And this, the essence of it is this, that deliverance may or may not come. But God is more interested in our faith. He's more interested in, in our expression of trust in him, our belief that God is good in the midst of suffering and trial. So when you look at this psalm, and it begins with this rallying call, you ask, what is it that God wants from us? He doesn't necessarily want us to, uh, to prioritize the prayer for deliverance. I think deliverance matters. But ultimately, God is more interested in our praise. He's more interested in our expressions of trust in him, which is why the psalm begins with this extraordinary note. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and so on. And this is a pattern you see in the scriptures, even in very dark moments. You think about Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, we're told that he gathered with his disciples and he broke the bread and he gave them the wine and said, this is my blood in the covenant. He knew that he was about to die for us. And as they celebrate that, that last supper together, which is the beginning of communion, of course, uh, the Eucharist, our celebration through the eating of the bread and the drinking of the wine. Mark and Matthew both just tell us that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So the what they do as Jesus contemplates his impending crucifixion, he praises God. With his disciples, he leads them in worship to God. Praise befits the upright. I told you a couple of weeks ago about Paul and Silas, who on one of their traveling journeys were imprisoned in the Philippian jail. And of course, there's never a guarantee for Paul when he's in jail that he's going to get out. He knows that his life is on the line. And yet, what do we find them doing? It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And I want to underline this for you, friends, that God is more interested in our faith, in our trust, in our ability to praise him than, than, we, than we are. I could put it like that, that we're more interested in deliverance, but God wants faith. He wants us to worship. So the question I want to ask as we begin to dig into this is why praise God in dark times? Why trust him at all? And the answer that the psalm gives to us <clears throat> is that we praise God and we trust God because of who he is. It is as simple and as extraordinary as that. Now, in other words, he gives us a theological foundation upon which we can respond in praise to the living God. And I, I want to stress this for you as I begin to open this up to you. I believe that every problem in the Christian life and also, if you're not a Christian, also in the non-Christian life, every problem in life is fundamentally a theological problem. In other words, it has to do with the knowledge of God. You think about moments of deep fear in your life, when you are afraid. It's not just that the circumstances are scary. It's also that in that moment, your, your knowledge of God is diminished. God is a smaller God in your mind. Your, theo your theology is not rich enough and deep enough to give you confidence through 
what would otherwise be a terrifying circumstance. Or think about how we can so often experience slavery to our desires and the giving way to temptation and to sin. What is that? It's a theological problem. And I'll tell you why. It's not just that temptation is tempting, which it is, and is alluring and seducing, but it's also this. The reason we give in to temptation is always because we don't believe God is good, because we don't believe that ultimately he'll give us more than what we're being offered in that moment, in that moment of temptation. It's a theological problem. The same is true with doubt. Why do we doubt? Well, it's partly because we can't see God, isn't it? But that's not the fundamental reason why we doubt. We doubt because we don't understand God's greater purposes as they're revealed through scripture, his plan, why he would, in a sense, conceal himself in certain ways. And why one day he will reveal himself. All of our problems in life can be traced back to theological issues. Issues with our thinking about God, our understanding of who he is. Now, what's the answer then? The answer isn't simply to necessarily just to read the Bible. Unfortunately, I would highly commend it. But I I actually don't think that that is a quick fix. Jesus chastises his fellow Jews at one point. When he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. These, these people, his, his, his sort of uh, contemporaries, knew the Bible. They knew it inside out. They knew it back to front. And yet they failed to see who Christ was in scripture, that the Messiah, that Jesus was the coming Messiah. So knowing the Bible is not in and of itself necessarily enough. It's vital, but it's not necessarily enough. Nor is uh, an encounter with God necessarily enough either. You know, some people say, well, if it's not, you know, if if scripture isn't enough, what we need is, is power. We need an encounter with God. But there are examples in scripture of people who encounter God and yet walked away unchanged. I think about the King Saul. He, He had on numerous occasions, the Holy Spirit did extraordinary things in his life, came upon him in power. He prophesied once. He, he was filled with the Spirit on another occasion. And yet Saul ultimately walks away from God. So if you're asking the question, how do we gain a knowledge of God that enables us to be changed and to ultimately to, to trust him and to be people who rely upon him and sing praise to him even in dark times? Somehow the answer is the coming together of both the truth in scripture and the power of God to enliven it in our hearts. This is what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. He, he prays to them that God will give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, that the Holy Spirit, the power will come upon you, but also that you'll know God better in your minds, that you'll understand the truth about God as it's revealed in scripture. He prays having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is our prayer. That somehow the truth about God will not just be an intellectual thing that we grasp, but that it will sink deep into our souls, into our hearts, and change the way we feel, the way we think, the way we respond to him in moments even like this. We're in a crisis. Can you sing to God right now? Can you praise him? Now, what is the knowledge of God then that the psalmist wants us to grasp? in order that we can praise him. And I'll show you a few things that he says. He says, first of all, he sings about the character of God. In verse four, it says, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. He speaks of God's character there. Now, this is everything. 
let me show you why. We're living in a very strange moment where we're seeing the the kind of a plethora of all kinds of bizarre uh, conspiracy theories arising about, you know, all kinds of conjecture and questions about the actions of of governments and about the origination of this virus and about why it's here and what the, the Chinese government's done and what our government's doing about its treatment of old people. And all kinds of, of conspiracies are constantly in circulation right now. And you ask the question, why? Why are we so vulnerable to all this conspiracy that's, that's circulating? And part of the answer, of course, is just that we're sat at home. We've got too much time to think about this stuff and to to watch YouTube videos or read articles that, that feed our questioning. But the other reason is because of a massive degradation in our trust for the powers that be. And when trust is diminished, we question. Now, the same is true in our relationship toward God. If you don't trust God, your questions will gnaw away at you and will ultimately destroy your faith. But the scriptures show us that God is good. And this is what the psalmist wants us to grasp here above all. He sings about the character of God as a reason to praise him. The word of the Lord is upright. All is work done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. He sings of God's character. Then he sings about God's power as another reason to praise him. He says, in verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. He's clearly speaking here about God's actions in creating the world and God's, God's authority over his created world and he's trying to unfold for us the fact that there is no one more powerful than god god is power is a reason to praise him now there are two circumstances in which we're absolutely stuffed one is if god is good but he has no power he's impotent and he can't effect change in the world he can't he can't do what he wants to do and another situation which we're stuffed is if god has power but he's not good that would make him a cosmic threat to us and, and, and a reason to be absolutely terrified. You have permission to be terrified if that's what you believe about God. But what the psalmist wants us to do, you know, he's told us about the goodness of God. Now he's speaking about the power of God. And what he wants to show us is that the power of God is affected to bring his creation into order. He is opposed to evil. And the way he explains this to us is in God's control over the sea. You probably didn't really notice this, but he says, he puts it like this, that he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. The Hebrews were not a seafaring people. They feared the sea as one of the greatest evils. They understood it to be something unpredictable, uncontrollable. And anyone who spent any amount of time on the sea will know that this is true. The, the sea is incredibly dangerous. And the Hebrews were not seafaring. They viewed the sea as something uncontrollable, which is why at the end of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, when we're reading the description of the new heavens and the new earth, one of the aspects of the new heavens and the new earth is that there'll be no sea. In other words, all of that restless, uncontrolled evil that we see in the world will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a symbolic way of speaking. 
But it speaks to us, doesn't it? If God controls the sea, that dark, uncontrollable, restless evil that it can be, does he not control other seemingly uncontrollable evils that might be troubling us in our day, in our time? The psalmist wants to tell us about the goodness of the character of God, but also about his power and how he uses his power to bring his creation into order. And then he tells us a third thing here. He tells us is about the supremacy of God. or The language we often use is about God's sovereignty, his supremacy or his sovereignty. He says in verse 10, 10 onwards, he says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. In other words, he says man's plans fail and God's plans are supreme and cannot be thwarted. Now, we ought to be able to understand these verses now better than at any other time. And I'll tell you why, especially if you're British. For 12 years since the financial crisis in 2008, our government has been seeking to bring our economy into good shape and to establish a stable footing so that we can grow more wealthy and richer as a nation. And then more recently, by a slim majority, but majority nonetheless, the British people decided to chart their own destiny and be a self-determined people to sail the high seas, to borrow the language of our Prime Minister, by voting for Brexit. And, and it was seen as an act of defiance, but also of triumph, saying we're the British people and we can make it on our own. And then more recently, we voted in a Prime Minister with a massive majority, a mandate from the nation to lead us into this time of future prosperity. And then what happens? A virus hits the world and all of the progress we made with the economy has been undone already. And it's predicted that by June, the economy will have shrunk by a third, which is enormous when we're talking about incremental gains year on year. And then a third, gone. Brexit. I mean, who's talking about Brexit now? We we don't want to think about this because it's, it's looming. And yet, who can possibly imagine us doing a good job of, 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 of sailing the high seas as a nation when we can't even control this virus? And our prime minister, this man who's more powerful than, than, than any prime minister has been in our nation for quite some time, struck down in intensive care. On the edge of death, he was just a week ago or so, a week or so ago. And you think, how can it be that all of the best laid plans of men can be crashed, can be, can, be, can be thwarted, can, be, can crumble so rapidly. And this is what the psalm tells us. It says that the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. God's, God opposes men in this way, but he also then tells us that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, which is profoundly encouraging for people who know that they belong to God. If you've read the scriptures, you'll, you'll marvel at the way the plan of God unfolds through the pages of this book. And you can also then see yourself in this story and understand that God's plans have not been waylaid. It begins right in the earliest pages of the book of Genesis when subtle hints are given and predictions about the coming saviour who would one day stamp on Satan's head. And of course we 
we see this plan unfolding throughout the Old Testament, culminating in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're told about, after his resurrection, his ascension to the Father's right hand, a place from which he will rule and bring the nations into submission. And all this is predicted when the church is just a beleaguered group of a few people. And yet here we are, a couple thousand years later. And the name of Jesus is being praised by millions upon millions, potentially billions of people today, even right now. And God's plans are on course. He brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, but his counsel stands forever. This is what the psalm tells us. He wants us to understand the goodness and the character of God, the power of God, who controls even the most restless evil. And ultimately, his wise, sovereign, supreme plan, which is being effected through history. All this is the truth that's laid before us. Now, the psalm has a slight tilt, change of direction here. You ever been to a theatre, you see the massive spotlights at the back of a theatre, which are operated by these operators who shine them at the main characters on the stage. And so far in this psalm, the spotlight has been absolutely upon God. We're looking at him, we're contemplating him, we're hearing truth about him so that our hearts can sing again. But now the spotlight is tilted round and it's shone upon the audience. It's shone upon you and me. And we're told that God is looking at us. It says in verse 13 that the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Now, this is very interesting because what the psalm is trying to help us to understand is that if all these things are true about God, then why is it that we see such diverse ways of responding to or reacting to God? And he's telling us God is looking at you. God is interested in you. He's interested in your response to him right now. And what he does through in a kind of very general way is he shows us that there are fundamentally two different ways of responding to God. He tells us about the kind of prideful, independent response and the humble, dependent one. And I want us to just quickly contemplate these as we consider the rest of this psalm. There are those who, even in view of God's supremacy and his might and his authority and his goodness, still want to be independent from him. And the psalmist puts it like this in verse 16. He said, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Now, I, I grant that these are, these are ancient images which don't necessarily resonate with you in the modern day, so let me explain what he's saying. He's trying to describe the most powerful resources that a nation would have had at that time. And he's saying the reason... That you, the thing that you put your hope in, ultimately, God will cause to fail. He'll reveal it to be a false hope. Now, I think this is profoundly important to us in this moment, and I'll tell you why. This, for me, is one of the clear reasons why God would allow the world to face a crisis like the one we're facing right now. Now, I know that a lot of people would speculate, why does God allow this kind of stuff to happen? And all kinds of reasons can be offered up. And I don't pretend to have any special insight into that. There's mystery here. 
But what I do know from my reading of Scripture is that one of the reasons why God allows us to find ourselves in deep water, as it were, out of control, is in order to kind of take the rug out from our feet where where our confidence has been in the wrong things altogether. To destroy the pride of man, as scriptures call it. And you can see this all the way through the Bible. You see it in the earliest pages of the book of Genesis when the early humans begin to build a great tower in Babel. Babel. And they, they, they say this, they say, Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, let us establish that we as humanity are something special. Let us demonstrate our ingenuity and our power and our might. And what does God do? He thwarts the plan. He comes in and confuses the languages. We see it also in the book of Daniel. Again, with Nebuchadnezzar, that great, powerful emperor. He has a vision in which God tells him what's going to happen to him. He's, as far as he's concerned, he has no interest in the God of Israel. He has no interest in Yahweh. He looks at himself and thinks, I am a God. I'm powerful. There's no one like me. And God tells him, this is how I'm going to bring you down to the ground. This is how I'm going to humble you. He says, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So what he's predicting was that Nebuchadnezzar would experience a madness that would take hold of him for what seems to be about seven years and he'd become like a wild animal. And of course, as he goes through this experience, his heart is humbled to the ground and reflecting upon it. Nebuchadnezzar, who had no interest in the Israelite God, in Yahweh, becomes a believer in that God. He says, my reason returned to me. He becomes rational, in other words, for the first time in his life, I think. He says, and I blessed the Most High and praise and honor to him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Then he warns, he warns humanity. He says that all God's works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. So although there are many questions I can't answer about the crisis we're currently facing, what I know about the work of God through scripture is that when, when humanity puts its confidence in the wrong things, God has a way of, of diminishing or, or revealing that our faith was misplaced. And we see this in scripture. We also see this in history. In the, the end of the 19th century, In the beginning of the 20th century, it was the age of empires. Great empires ruled the world. We had the British Empire and the French and the Dutch. And all these empires were were at their very pinnacle. And technology was beginning to burgeon. And and humankind, we felt that we we could master the planet and ourselves and bring into, into existence a kind of utopia. And then what happens? The First World War comes, a great slaughter. And then the Second World War. And all of our technological advancement, all of the pride we have in ourselves, is, is utterly destroyed. And this is what the psalm says. It says, look, this is who God is. And as he looks down upon humankind, he sees some who put their confidence in themselves. Like the king who trusts in his great army. And he describes this as, as a false hope for salvation. God has a way of destroying your false hopes. And you may be experiencing that even right now. 
You had all these dreams for how, what would make your life meaningful and worthwhile and make your existence on earth livable and joyful and fulfilled. And it's like those dreams can slip through our fingers. And, and the point is this. This is the mercy of God. This is the mercy of God. Because ultimately, if you believe in a false hope and you die still believing in a false hope, you haven't been saved. So sometimes God moves proactively in our lives personally or in, on the grand sort of stage of history to bring humanity to a place of hum- humility. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll respond rightly to what's happening right now, but, it, but you can. And as the spotlight shines on, he describes that situation of independence from God. But then he describes those who, who express humble dependence upon God as the psalm ends. And he puts it like this. Verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord. Think of that spotlight. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. That he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in famine. If you ask the question, what does God most desire from people, from you? He doesn't most desire your obedience. He doesn't most desire your good works. He doesn't most desire your purity. All these things are important in scripture. Often we put them as primary, but we're mistaken to do so. The thing God most wants of us is our faith, is our trust. A kind of humility which recognizes that God is over us and that we ought to rely entirely upon him and not upon ourselves. And this is expressed in this exquisite balance, the way the psalmist speaks here when he says that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Now, if you reflect for a moment on that, that sounds at first glance quite paradoxical. Why is he speaking about a kind of fear of God in the same breath that he's speaking about hope and God's love? And certainly, This is the balance of what faith looks like all through scripture. On the one hand, the Bible tells us that God is holy and righteous and that he could in in an instant strike us down because of the sin that we have done and that lives in us. And we ought to fear him. But at the same time, the scriptures tell us that this same God loves you, that he is for you, that he wants to invite you to know him and to trust him and to rely upon this steadfast love that the scriptures speak about. And we never more clearly see the coming together of this paradoxical relationship of fear, but also of hope than when we witness the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. In that moment when Jesus was crucified, we see the wrath of God being poured out against sin concentrated like a lens when you concentrate the 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 power and the light of the sun through a lens into one concentrated speck all of the wrath of god against sin is spent when it's poured out upon jesus on the cross and so we should fear god but at that same instance in that moment we're seeing the love of god in the giving of his son to be our substitute to be our savior upon the cross The scriptures tell us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. This is the paradox of what faith looks like. It's the awe of God which responds to him in fear and says, 
woe is me. And you bow before him. You say, God, you're supreme and sovereign. I don't understand all your ways. But I cannot question you because you are mighty. But it's also hope in God. It says, I know that you love us. And I know that love supremely because of the giving of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon the cross. So as the psalm draws to a close in verse 20, the psalmist speaks to himself or to, to us as believers and says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. He wants us to walk away with assurance. Now, the the cold, harsh reality is this, that if you don't know God, God will frustrate your sense of peace. He will frustrate your sense of assurance, your sense of confidence in life, because he does not want you to walk away under a delusion, trusting like the king and his great army and his mighty horses. But when you're brought, as the psalmist shows us, to a great humility, before this great and awesome God, who's faithful, who is powerful, and who is supreme and sovereign, and who's, who will, whose counsels prevail above the plans of men. When you're brought to a humility before him and you learn to trust in him, you can know peace. The ultimate peace, of course, is the peace of knowing that he will save you ultimately. He'll save you in eternity, which is the offer of the Christian faith. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him. Believe on his death. And God will give you the sense of peace that even death cannot separate you from him. I want to close with a prayer. And Pete's going to lead us in a response of worship now. But I want to encourage you, if you find yourself in moments of darkness, in moments of feeling a complete absence of peace, it's very likely that you were trusting the wrong things. And this psalm is a call to praise God again. It's a call to come back to, a, to an acknowledgement of who God is in truth and that the Spirit will bring this alive in your heart. That as you see Him, you'll worship Him. And I want to encourage you. I want to, I want to invite you. Maybe even for the first time, why don't you worship with us right now? Why don't you listen to the truth of this psalm and say, God, I want to trust in you. Everything else will fail. Everything else is a, is a false False foundation. I want to trust in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that to know you is to know life, but to know you also is to know a secure foundation in order to live. And I pray, Lord, that we will be able to take your praise upon our lips again, to sing joyful songs even in the midst of crisis, and to do so because of who you are, Lord. I pray, Lord, we'd have a theological foundation that will see us through this present crisis. That the truth of your word will be enlivened by the work of the Spirit in our hearts to truly believe on you, to truly trust you, and to be unshakable in our confidence in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And I ask for those, Lord, who, who do not know you, who feel that they are not saved, who feel that they are not part of your family. Lord, give them a glimmer or a sense of hope today that they can believe on you for the first time and know a peace which is stronger than death. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.